Stories. Everybody's got them, and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings, and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Zulkowski. Thank you for joining us today. I just want to take some time to thank my wife, Larissa, for all that she contributed over the past several episodes, our adoption story, and then again, the story last time of her and my mom, the two moms that I've had in my life. As I mentioned last time, I'm going to spend some time in a couple of weeks and kind of talk to you about the two dads in my life, my Heavenly Father and my dad, Alex. I did want to issue one correction in the discussion of my mom last time. I mistakenly said that my uncle was the oldest of the three children in my mom's family. He's actually the youngest, so it was my Aunt Marie as the oldest, my mom was in the middle, and my uncle Bill was the youngest, and that was pointed out to me by his son Bill. And I just want to make sure that we cover all the details and get all our T's crossed and our I's dotted and before we move on. So I want to share with you tonight uh, the beginning of several episodes that I'll take at times, um, sometimes with interruptions in between, but I just want to spend some time with you in what I'm calling my faith journey. And my faith journey starts even before I came to know Christ. My faith journey starts when I'm a little kid. And you've heard bits and pieces of this story in other episodes, but I just want to rehearse a good chunk of it up to the time, at least, of God gripping my life at the age of 18. And just kind of tell you who I was as a kid. You've caught glimpses of that. I was a pretty ornery kid. You saw that in some of the interactions with my sister and my mom growing up. But I was a fairly normal kid. We were a fairly normal family. Um, There was no divorce in our immediate family. My parents stayed together until they both went to be with the Lord. Um, They gave an example to us of what love is really like, although in my family growing up, I would call it love at high volume. There was always something going on. There was always some sort of point that was trying to be made, sometimes at great volumes, um, either between my parents or my dad and my sister or between the siblings. There just was uh, volume. And it was never contentious. It was never walk away and never come back. It was never walk away and we're going to sit on this for months. It was, we loved each other. We had to get our point across and we had to say it. And then once we said it, we all knew we were family when we were done. And we loved each other and moved on. And so I grew up in a family like this. I grew up in a family, again, that exemplified love for one another. And As far as our faith journey growing up, for the first 14 years of my life, it was spent in the local Catholic church. We grew up, I grew up in a city called Florence, Colorado, and in that town still is a local parish called St. Benedict's, and that church was church home for us for 14 years of my life. 
I went because I was expected to go. My parents wanted to go. My dad was raised Catholic. My mom was raised in a Disciples of Christ church, I believe. And uh, she converted to Catholicism so that they could get married in the Catholic church. And they raised us as good Catholic kids. Um, My brother was confirmed. My sister was confirmed. And I was not. And that'll be part of the story I'll tell here in a few minutes. But I went to church because I had to. Um, It wasn't that I disliked it. I just wasn't very interested in it as a kid. It was... Sunday school, or at the time, which we, we called it catechism, was was fun, and I was with my friends, and and I can recall times that I spent with dear friends in in that context, um, all the way up through eighth grade, and but church itself just didn't hold a lot for me, at least initially when we were first members there. Church was very high church kind of thing. You, everybody knew when to sit. Everybody knew when to kneel. Everybody knew when to stand. Everybody knew what to repeat. I followed along and kind of had a good idea of what was going on. I went through First Communion, so I was able to take communion. But it just didn't hold much for me. It was a lot of repetition to me. It was a lot of um, things that didn't interest me as a kid. And so I spent a lot of time in church as a little kid sleeping on somebody's shoulder. I mean, it was Sunday morning. It's weekend. Like, I have to get up at, you know, 7.30, 7 o'clock every day to go to school. And Saturday, I got up because I wanted to because Looney Tunes was on at 6 a.m. But on Sunday, as a kid, I would have much rather have slept in. So... As I got to church, I would look for somebody who had a shoulder, and I would snuggle up against my dad or my mom, and I would fall asleep. And when the service was over, we sang a song pretty regularly, and the song was called The Mass is Ended. And that song was, I liked it a lot. I liked the content of it. It was short. I liked the the kind of pickup and the the peppiness of the song but more than anything I liked the fact that it meant that church was over and I didn't have to go back for another week so even as a kid we went to confession we we did all those things we participated in the fundraisers that the church held I even in eighth grade went on a retreat with a group of my friends in eighth grade but it was much more about chasing a girl that I really liked a girl named Judy than it was about some spiritual awakening or time alone with God. It was time with my friends, Mike and and Ken and other guys that I that I cared for deeply as a as a young man. And it was a time in a place that was away from everything in a town called Aguilar, Colorado. But it wasn't church camp. Uh, it wasn't something where I went expecting to encounter God. And 14 was a pivotal time. As I entered high school, my parents came to me at one, mo- at one point during my uh, freshman year of high school, and my mom wanted me to sit down in my bedroom. We were standing in the kitchen. We walked in the bedroom. We sat on the end of the bed together, and she said, I have something to tell you. And my first thought was, somebody in my family is dying. That's really what I thought. But she said to me, your sister is pregnant. And my response after a few seconds was, that's cool. I didn't have any 
moral objection to anything. I didn't have any qualms with it. I thought, you know, she's been dating a guy for a while now, and uh, that's cool. They're going to have a baby, and I'm so thrilled that they did. I'm so thrilled that he's still a part of my life and their life today. His name is Alan. He was born in 1979. But what I didn't know was all the backstory. My sister and her husband and her soon-to-be husband, her boyfriend, um, were cultivating a relationship together. But more than that, God was culting, cultivating a relationship with them and drawing them to himself. And my parents loved the Catholic Church, and they wanted very much for their daughter and their to-be son-in-law to be married in the Catholic Church. And they went to the Catholic Church in our hometown, and they asked the priest to marry them, and the response was no. I'm pausing for a few seconds to let that sink in, because I'm confident that everybody, almost everybody I know, has a wound at the hands of church. And some people don't recover from it, and some people do, and some people harbor it for decades and decades. But it fractured my parents. It, it broke them. Everything that they had put their faith in, they had put their faith in God, but really, I believe at the time, they had put their faith in church. And that was broken and their comment to the priest was, these kids have every intention of getting married and staying married. And my sister and my brother-in-law are to this day, now 43 years later, they are still together. They still love their kids. They have two, Alan, who was born because of that situation, and his sister, born two years later, Kristen, they have grandkids. They're raising one of their grandkids along with Alan. And they had every intention of getting and staying married. And they did have, and they followed through. And I'm so grateful for that. And I guess what I'm saying is it was the Catholic Church's loss to have not to choose not to marry them because they would have been a testimony for 43 years later of of what God had accomplished but that kind of picked up and moved my parents came to me shortly after that and said my mom sat me down again and I'm thinking oh no now somebody else can't be pregnant so somebody surely had to have died again and she said we're not going to go to church anymore and again, I paused and I thought about it for a few minutes. And in my head, I went, woohoo. But to her, I said, that's cool. See, at the age of 14 in the Catholic Church, you begin the process toward confirmation. And in the Catholic Church, it's as you're baptized in a, as an infant, you're sealed with Christ. But confirmation is this coming of age. You now have the ability to make your own decision. You now understand what's going on, and you become confirmed in the Catholic Church's eyes. And in Protestant churches, we forego the baptism at infancy, and we wait until there's this time of accountability and understanding on a, on a young person's part before we baptize them in the church. If they come to faith in Christ— at the age of five or eight or 12, 
whatever that might be, and they can articulate what Christ has done for them and what the gospel is, then in the Protestant churches, we baptize them at that time. We call it believer's baptism. But in the Catholic church, it was called confirmation. And what I was facing at the age of 14 was the prospect of having to be at church every week. It was important. It was important to this process that I be there every week. And again, I wasn't that interested in being there at all. And so when my parents told me that we were no longer going to go to church, I was grateful that I wasn't going to have to go through that confirmation process. And that may be my loss, but God knew what he was doing in all of that. And at the age of 14, I became a fairly morally centered kid. I can remember as a little kid, sixth grade was terribly difficult for me. Uh, at the age of 11 and 12, sixth grade, I was, I just hurt. I had four teachers, we moved classes, but I had three of the four teachers that did not like me at all. And I don't know what I'd done to foster that dislike. I know of some things that happened that did not make me their favorites, but none of them were anything that should have caused the dislike that they had for me. And if they ever have an opportunity to listen to this, Mrs. Smith, um, I don't recall one of their one of their one of the teachers' names, but Miss Pollard and Mrs. Smith, if you can ever explain to me what it was that I did as a sixth grader that caused you to not like me, it's okay. I I love you, and I will accept anything. I'll accept any kind of a discussion, but I'm not angry about it. I just know as a kid, I would spend Sunday nights crying myself to sleep because I hated school. And my mom would try to console me, and I would lay in, the, in my bed, and I would pray into the corner of a room. I would pray something like this, God, if you're out there, and you're real, I need you. And in sixth grade, he met me in several ways, and he did some things, but I didn't recognize him at that time. Even at the age of 14, when we walked away, at the, walked away from the Catholic Church, I didn't recognize him. And for four years of high school, it became easier and easier to slide away from that moral center that the Catholic Church had provided, that my upbringing had provided. It became easier and easier to say the things that I knew I shouldn't say and to do the things that I shouldn't do. And I have confessions of things that I did I've told some to some people, and I've told many to others, and I've told all to God. But there are many things during my high school year that I was far from proud that I was a part of. And if you were to go and look at my high school yearbooks, you would see a fairly normal, fairly well-adjusted freshman. And then you would see a little bit more troubled, a little bit darker sophomore and you would see an even darker junior. And then you would see a, a senior that had purpose in his life. And there's a reason for that. I talked about it during the Canyon Cable 11 years, that over that period of time, over those four years of high school, as I was sliding farther and farther away from a moral center, 
I had questions. I have always been an inquisitive person. I have always been somebody who wanted to know where it was all headed and wanted to have an answer for all the questions. I love to research. If if a situation is presented with me and I have the ability to go and look for an answer, that's what I'm going to do. And when I was a junior in high school and through those Canyon Cable 11 years, I became a part of a staff of seven people that had extremely varied religious upbringings, everything from uh, a Mormon to an atheist to a Jehovah's Witness to some non-practicing Catholics to a Catholic altar boy to a non-practicing Southern Baptist. It was obvious in the midst of that to me as a kid that there had to be truth in the middle of this morass of ideas. I really liked the guy who was an atheist, but I knew what he believed or what he didn't believe was not where I was probably ever going to end up. And the Mormon was probably one of the nicest, most humble people I've ever met in my life, a gentleman by the name of Glenn. But pretty much thought that I would not end up there either. The young lady who was the Jehovah's Witness, she was living in the middle of such legalism that I knew I wouldn't end up there never saw much religiosity from the gentleman who was a non-practicing Southern Baptist. What I did see, I didn't much care for. I knew where I stood. I knew where my boss stood as non-practicing Catholics. And above all of them, I probably gave the greatest credence to what he believed to the young man who was an altar boy. He was in his 20s. He was practicing his Catholic faith in the same parish that I had been a part of, and he was living it. And so he got the pass. And in all of that, I still wondered where the truth lie, because somebody had to have an answer, and I didn't feel like any of them had a corner on truth. And so God began a process in me that started back in sixth grade and worked my way through him allowing me to walk away, to encounter the dark side of life, the the dark side of the world through my thoughts, through my actions, through uh, perversions, through difficulties, through cursing. He allowed me to, to walk away so that I would know what it was like when he showed up and when he presented himself to me. And this is what God does in people's lives. He, he allows them to go where they think they're going to find happiness. Some people go and run toward drugs or alcohol or fame or money or family or religiosity. And God will allow people to walk that path as far as it takes them, a far, as far away from him as it takes for them to see that he's different, that his love is different, that his care for us is different, and that his plan for us is different. And that's what happened over those last year, that last year and a half of high school. I had a purpose in my life now. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a video director. 
I wanted to produce video. I wanted to be the the technical director and the actual director of the Super Bowl. That was my life's goal. But something happened in my freshman year of college. I met a young lady in the first few weeks of my freshman year of college, and it was really strange that she and I had grown up in the same hometown and didn't know each other. In fact, she is a stepsister to my brother-in-law, and I didn't know her. She went to a Christian school in town. I went to the public school. We Our paths never crossed. Um, even in relationship with my brother-in-law, her, our paths never crossed. And it was through a mutual friend that we were introduced, and I asked her out, and she accepted, and we began dating. And I really cared for her. She was a true, sweet young lady. And she was cute, and I liked her a lot. But I was also a kid who had a different view of what women were, and they were someone to be lusted after as opposed to being someone to be loved and cared for and nurtured and grow close to. And that was kind of my basis for a relationship. But we dated for several months. We went to high school basketball and football games together, and we we spent time together. But it became very apparent to her a few months into our dating, even in the midst of all of this, she sensed that something was going a direction that she didn't feel like it needed to go. She was a believer. She was a believer in Christ. She'd been raised in a Christian home, and she knew God. She trusted her with her very life, and she trusted our relationship with him when she approached me over the hood of a car on October 30th of 1983. When she looked me in the eyes and she, we had just come back from church together and she'd been taking me to church hoping that God would grip my heart. But she approached me and spoke to me across the hood of that car that night and she said to me, she said, we're going very different directions. And I'm a believer in Christ and you're not. And it can't go on because you're not headed the direction that I'm headed and I questioned at the time, I questioned shortly after the fact, did I make a decision for Christ that night to maintain my relationship with her? And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the decision I made that night, what God led me to that night, was him. Because when she was gone, he was still there. We, the young lady and I became engaged. Um, I bought her a diamond chip engagement ring and we were engaged for a couple of months and it became obvious that we weren't to be together we were passionate but that passion swung from passion to fighting and it was just obvious that we were not meant to be together and by February of the next year we were no longer dating we were no longer boyfriend and girlfriend, we were no longer engaged, but we remained friends. And she found the love of her life, my best friend. And to this day, they're still married and still loving each other and have raised a son and have a daughter-in-law and grandchildren now. And it was obvious that God had someone for her and it wasn't me. And that's how I know, looking back on it, 
that the decision I made that night, and I don't even say that I made it, he led, God led me to himself that night. As she poised that question to me about her going one direction and me going a different direction, I realized that I had found the truth that I'd been searching for. And I realized that life could have purpose and it was different than all the things that I'd seen modeled in atheism and Jehovah's Witness and Catholicism and all these other things. And it was what I saw in this young lady. And I walked inside of her house and she and her mom and my sister led me to Christ. They walked me through the process. It was God's doing. You have to understand, nobody comes to Christ because somebody said all the right words or nobody comes to Christ on their own and says, I finally realized that this is what it is, so I'm going to give my life to Christ. No, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, draws people to himself even when they don't know him, even when they're far from him. Again, I said before that he let me walk as far away from him as I had to, to be able to recognize him when he confronted me with himself. And it was that night that he confronted me with himself and with his love. And I walked away from that evening after having prayed a prayer of repentance and forgiveness and acceptance of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I walked away knowing in my heart that something had changed. The immediate evidence was how God sanctified, and I know that's a big term for some, but it just means a purification process. God instantly purified my speech. I had no desire to curse anymore. doesn't mean I haven't cursed since, but at that time I had no desire to speak the way I had spoken. And I also knew because my motivations, my goals in life changed immediately. I still wanted to be involved in video, but I no longer wanted to direct the Super Bowl. I no longer wanted to just do video for the world. I wanted to do what I knew to do and what God had built into me as a gifting for his honor and for his glory. And that's the path that he placed me on that night, October 30th of 1983. And I'll talk to you in future episodes about exactly how that panned out, some some opportunities that came up to, to be involved with friends of mine in something called Impulse 85 a couple years later, uh, walks through churches that sometimes grew and sometimes closed, um, how that path led me to Nashville, Tennessee, how that path from Nashville led me to Cleveland, how that path has led me to where I am now. There's, a, there's an author, uh, a pastor by the name of Eugene Peterson. I, I don't know if he's still alive. I didn't research that part. Uh, sorry, I'll find that out. But he is the translator or the yeah, the translator of a Bible version called the message. And the message is very much that. It's a, it's a paraphrase of the Bible that he came up with that is just very conversational, very 20th, 21st century in the terms that are used. And it's, and it's a great place to spend some time occasionally. It's not the best place to spend the totality of your Christian walk in, a, in that particular translation, but it's a great place to go and get some insight in just how God speaks through the translation of Eugene Peterson. Well, Eugene also wrote a book many years ago 
and it's entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that's his definition of discipleship in what he calls an instant society. It's the definition of faithfulness. And this is what God looks for in those who call themselves Christians. He looks for faithfulness. He looks for long obedience in the same direction. He looks for a life that starts somewhere with him and ends at a funeral where people are saying the things about someone that God would have them say, like he was a gentleman who followed Christ with his whole heart. He's a gentleman who lived his life for his family. He lived his life to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He lived a life that when he entered into God's presence, God said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my presence. That's what faithfulness is. That's what long obedience in the same direction is. And I'm not going to be the person to say that. I can't say that. There but by the grace of God go I. A stumbling could happen tomorrow. But my hope is that when my life is over, that it's said of me that Jeff had a long obedience in the same direction. And that direction was Jesus Christ. And he lived a life to chase hard after Jesus. And he loved his family well. He loved his daughter well. He loved his wife well. He loved his friends well. That's my hope. I won't know. I'm, I'll, I'll be with Christ. But I hope my funeral is marked by testimonies like that. And it all started because somebody loved me enough to say, you having a relationship with Christ is more important than my relationship with you. And that's that young lady across that, across that car that night. Her mom discipled me. And Pat said to me, it's more important that you grow in your faith and walk with Christ than it is a lot of things. She loved me to the very end of her life. My sister and my brother-in-law loved me enough to pray for me when I was far from Christ. And more than anything, God loved me enough to let me see what life was like without him so that when he introduced himself to me, I would recognize him. So in future episodes, I'll continue this discussion of my faith journey. We'll go on, as I said, through Impulse 85 and time in Nashville and time in Cleveland. And I'll bring you up to the present day and the story as it continues even now. But right now, I just want to pray for you. As I do every episode, I want to pray for you because if you're listening to this and this sounds foreign to you. You've never been at a place in your life where you've been so far away from God that you can see what he's really like. He will let you go there. 
And I pray that he lets you go there so that you can see him when he introduces himself to you. But if he's introducing himself to you right now, this may be the day of your salvation. As you're listening to this now or months or years into the future, this may be the day of your salvation. So let me pray for you. If you don't know Christ, pray something like this. Father God, I am so glad that you will allow me to walk away from you so that I can recognize you when you present yourself to me. And Father, I do recognize you. I do feel my heart pounding within my chest, and I do see that none of the things that I've been trying to make my life better are accomplishing anything, that only you can accomplish that for me, that only you are the way, the truth, and the life, that only Jesus, only Jesus is the path to you. Only what he did on the cross is what allows me to have a relationship with you. So I come to you with all that I am, all the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, and I lay it before you and I say, I turn from it, I repent, I walk away from that, and I'm following you from this moment forward. Let my life be a long obedience in the same direction. And let me, when I enter your presence at the end of my life, let me hear from your lips, Father God, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my presence. If that's you and you've surrendered your life to Christ and you want him to be Lord, that means you want him to be in charge. You've walked away from those things that you thought were going to make your life better and you're trusting him and you trust him as Savior to save you from yourself, from your sins, from eternal punishment. If you can say, he is my Lord and Savior, you need to find somebody that you know is a Christian and you need to talk with them and you need to let them disciple you and walk through this like Pat did with me. If you're a believer and you have people in your heart, model the life of my brother-in-law and my sister. Pray for those people who don't know you, that don't know Christ. Model yourself after that young lady in my life that was willing to give up her relationship with me so that I could have a relationship with Christ. Model yourself after her mom, Pat, that you'll be willing to disciple someone into the very first steps of a walk with Christ. So, tonight was a little heavier, but it's good sometimes to take some time and just remember what it is that God's doing in this world. He is drawing people to himself. He's changing their eternal destiny and he's setting them free from themselves to accomplish great, great things in this world. If you want to get in touch with me, please log on to our website, www.rl-history.com. There's a place that'll pop up that says chat. There's a place where you can connect. Let me know what's going on in your life. I want to know. And keep listening. You're the reason for this podcast. You're the reason that God gave me this to do. So keep listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Aural History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.